Let's pray. Father, help me this morning. Thank you for blessing me with people in my life and opportunities to study to present things, Father, that are very important for us. They're the essentials of our living and what we need to do to respond to you, to be your people. And Father, sometimes we take a back seat and let others speak up and they will misspeak. But as your people, Father, you've called us to responsibility and accountability. You've called us to be people who stand up to live holy. You've called us to be people who stand up with a message to call others to become holy. And Father, your challenge to us cannot fall on deaf ears. Help us all to listen more to your voice and respond. And as we do that, Father, remember, there is nothing at all that can save an individual except the blood of Jesus Christ. And may we share the message, Father, that will bring people in contact to that. Bless us and guide us as we study in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week was the first of two lessons I wanted to do, so if you missed out on that one, you might want to go back and pick up a little bit and, and, and look at what's there. But basically what I wanted to do is to let us know that what I'm presenting in these lessons is a result of, number one, um, some things that were brought to the attention of the leadership, the elders in particular, about uh, um, the upcoming voting issue at the end of uh, November concerning late-term abortion. And it, it uh, drove us to the idea of looking at... Uh, our responses and, and talking about moral issues and not really bringing politics and culture and society into the pulpit or in a public forum, but do address the things that are moral and address those things that are important. And uh, sometimes we get distracted as Christians from what our commission really is. And uh, last week I mentioned from Second Corinthians chapter 5 that... Um, our, our basic mission is to reconcile people. We have a, a responsibility to reconcile people to God through Jesus Christ because transforming people is the work of God. It's not the work of society per se. God has given government, Romans chapter 13 says it's a place and things are supposed to do, but the basic core issue of, tran- of transforming people, that work belongs to God. Moralism has never really been the message of the Bible. It's never really been the mandate of what God wants us to do. Uh, we cannot successfully call our nation to morality merely from a political forum. There, there's a, a, a better way that God has given to us to do that. Uh, we are against immorality. Any good Christian would be. But morality and religion per se, not the answer. Government and religion cannot save us. Only Jesus saves. He's the only way, the only truth. And the only life that we have. So last week I, I talked about the idea of uh, uh, morality and, and culture and society and the church and, and in an overall picture. And to, to follow after that, to follow after just cultural morality and the platform for that uh, can be very misleading. And not only can it be misleading, uh, it can also be dangerous. There are some things I think that are not really completely thought out by Christians that they need to, to look at and consider. And so from some material that I, I gathered as I uh, considered some things that John MacArthur had said in one of his lessons and uh, looking at this overall outline of things, I want to share very quickly some of the dangers that I think following the platform of cultural morality presents to us. Uh, first of all, it's not our commission. Second Corinthians 5 again, 17 through 20, and uh, you could add Matthew 28, 19 and 20 to that to go into all the world preach the gospel. We're to reconcile people through the gospel um, 
to God through Jesus Christ. And following cultural morality as Christians mean right at the outset, we're going to be trying to do something we've not even been mandated by God to do. He's given us another way to do that. And what's interesting to me is to do that becomes a uh, diversionary tactic, a diversionary activity. And you have to stop and ask yourself, who is it? What power is it that loves to get us off track from what we really should be doing that God has called us to do? For another thing, it's a waste. It wastes immense amounts of of precious resources, time, money, human energy. You know, uh, at the end of the day, if you're outside of Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter if you're a prostitute or a policeman, guess where you're going to end up? Outside of Jesus. And we don't want people to do that. In an effort to try to clean up America just simply by appealing to uh, morality and that kind of a platform, think about what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 13, verse 23. He would ask, can the leopard change his spots? Can the Ethiopian change his skin? So the prophet would go to point out, uh, are you able to become something other than what you are? You can't do that on your own. You need God's help. Ephesians 5 and verse 16 says, Make the most of your time because the days are evil. Understand what the will of the Lord is and don't be foolish. And the will of the Lord is to preach a message of reconciliation, the gospel, to share that with people. Anything other than that is going to be foolish because it becomes futile. It becomes a waste of time overall. I'm not interested in making this country moral per se. I am interested in bringing people to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ so that he can recreate them. And when he does that, guess what they become? They become moral. The next thing to notice is this effort at cultural morality sets us up for inevitable failure because you just can't do it. No one can truly be righteous and moral before God apart from the transformation of the soul that's going to be done by the Holy Spirit working through the gospel to mold us into the image of Jesus Christ. The Bible says the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That means we desperately need God's help more than anything else. If you don't change the heart, all you do is redirect the sin. If you make some sins illegal, then people turn around and practice other sins. And then the sins that have become illegal, they go do those in private anyway. They'll find a way to commit those. John MacArthur made this statement, and I liked it. He said, cultural morality is programmed for failure. And I thought that was a pretty powerful statement to make. Next, cultural morality fails to understand the nature of the kingdom of God. In John 18, verse 36, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. There's no connection. In fact, the argument in the context is, If my kingdom were of this world, my servants wouldn't be fighting you right now. They would be keeping me from going to the cross and uh, keep you from taking me captive. But then my, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not of this realm. And to spend all of our time and energy and effort fighting for an element of human society really is going to miss the point. It fails to understand the nature of the kingdom. And the kingdom, by the way, is a monarchy. It's not a democracy. We are under the rule of King Jesus. That's where we're supposed to be. And the kingdom is the realm of salvation where God rules over and blesses those who are in Christ Jesus. And the key phrase to me is, in Christ. Because if you get outside of Christ, what have you got? 
doesn't matter how much uh, you work on making people more moral. You really don't have much going there at all. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul says for the Christian, our citizenship is in heaven. Our true citizenship is not this country. Our true citizenship is in heaven. And so with that in mind, we, we look at uh, asking, well, do we really want to bring blessings to this nation? Yes, we do. Then preach the gospel. Because there's no, no uh, connection between just a national entity and the kingdom of God as such. The kingdom of God is something that sets apart from that. And that's what people need in their lives. So Jesus says very clearly, my kingdom is not of this world. They are complete, two completely different and opposite realities. And somehow we've gotten the idea, or some people get the idea, that uh, you know, if we posture America politically, it'll be for the advancement of the kingdom of God. You know, People say things like, uh, if America keeps going the way it's going, and if sin becomes more and more rampant and more acceptable in our society, and if we get more and more corruptible, uh, it's going to cripple the impact of the gospel. It's going to cause evangelism to be hard to do if it's not legal. You know, we've got to fight for all the freedoms that we have so that we can preach the gospel. And that's not true. That's not true. Does it help? Yes. Would that be good? Yes. But you can preach the gospel no matter where you are, no matter what the setup is. There's nothing that can be done that has been done or that would be done if we have to depend upon people for their political and social help, it's a matter of depending upon God for the power he gives us. Paul says in that Corinthian passage that Kevin read a while ago, so that your faith would rest in the power of God and not in people. And next, this effort puts the responsibility on people rather than on God. It means you have well-intentioned people who are trying to do the impossible if we put it all on their shoulders. I don't want to spend all my life trying to do what I can't do and what I know I can't do and what I can't do with my own ingenuity, my own persuasive powers of speech or any other intensity or self-discipline or, or work ethic or anything else. I don't want to spend my life trying to do what will never be accomplished that way. You and I don't have the ability or the capability to make people moral as such. We can't make this country of ours moral. It's just a battle we can't win by ourselves. One of the other things Jeremiah points out in Jeremiah 13, 23 is to say, you know, when you've got people who are accustomed to doing evil, what do you do with that? The only hope is God. They're not doing good now. They're not pleasing God. They need to please God first and then work on their lives. The next thing to notice is this effort at cultural morality Creates a morality without theology. I don't like anything without theology. Everything I do and that I want to understand, that I want to look at, I want it mixed with the idea of God in his revelation. I, I really don't understand anything about creation or anything else that's going on without a revelation from God. My understanding of the world is completely subject to what the scriptures say. But when you look at this cultural morality, the growing religious right effort, there's a severe ignorance of theology, a severe ignorance of God's truth, God's word. And they're trying to accomplish something that has no theological, no God underpinnings to it. They think they can do it just on their own. It's not just a matter of money and persuasive speech and media events and pressure groups forcing people to do things. That's not how you get it done. 
It's a matter of having God's truth and God's word. Being concerned about efforts of morality and not undergirding that with God and his help, you're going to fight a losing battle. And you hear people saying all the time, well, we've got to protect our children. And that's right. That's good to do. That's reasonable. But that's not the highest motive for what we do. My goal in proclaiming the truth is not to protect my children. I've got that responsibility before God, and I've, I've tried to do that when, in, in raising my children, even now when they're, when they're away from me. But I'm not trying to create a national environment that's somehow going to incubate my, my kids. It sounds good, but it really doesn't work. My motive is the glory of God and the honor of God. That's at the core of it. I like this statement that was made. Sometimes uh, I'm so consumed with the honor of God that I feel very comfortable praying like David did. Kill all the bad people, God. Kill them all because they're dishonoring your name. They're wicked and they're our enemies and for your own glory. And I thought, you know what? Sometimes I feel that way. I think sometimes anybody who's really interested in God and his glory feels that way. Maybe there's a reflection of that in Revelation chapter 6 when the people under the altar, the souls of those people are crying, How long, O Lord? How long are you going to let this go before you bring a stop to it and be glorified? Without relying on revelation from God, you end up running amok. You, you just bank it into a wall and it's not going to, to work. So it's a movement that could use some pretty serious injections of, of sound theology from God himself through his revelation. The next thing to notice is it's a danger because it fails to understand the movement in cultural morality. It fails to understand the salt and light that's indicated in Matthew 5 as we've been studying uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. That we, God's people, not a moral thinking people of the world, we're the ones who are the true salt and the true light of the world. And we're to conduct ourselves that way. Salt and light is not mere moral influence. It's the witness of the gospel, the power of holy living, holy living people. They're the ones who are the moral people. And the imagery that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount with regard to salt and light is the whole image of shining forth truth. Not truth through just a moral platform, but truth through the revealed word of God. And so we proclaim that light. We manifest our good works, as he says to do, so that we glorify our Father who is in heaven. That, in turn, brings about results. We become a preservative because of the virtue and the godliness that that we manifest in our own lives. The next thing to notice is cultural morality is dangerous because it has no New Testament model to follow except the Pharisees. If you're going to look for just strict morality, strict moral living people, you look at the Pharisees in the New Testament, what they claim to be. They're the moral ones. And if you want to know what Jesus said about them, you look at Matthew 23 and verse 15. He told them, when you're through making somebody a convert to your morality, in essence, you've made him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Don't just bring him to your moral standard. You've got to bring him to God. You've got to do that through the Messiah, through Jesus Christ. And if you're looking for a New Testament model of of cultural morality, all you can end up with is the Pharisees, and they're a bunch of legalistic folks, and they don't accomplish what God wants. And I don't think I'd be happy rejoicing to to live in a uh, a Pharisaic-dominated society. 
It's dominated by mandates of self-righteousness, cruel and merciless legalists who put heavy burdens upon the people. John chapter 8, they get ready to pick up stones one day. They're going to stone an adulterous woman. And Jesus said, whoever's without sin, throw the first stone. And they started dropping their stones. I don't want to live in that kind of an environment. I want to live in one that's, that's uh, modeled with grace and mercy because of Jesus Christ and not because of my standard. There's no New Testament model as such for political action. Jesus didn't try to overthrow slavery. Paul didn't do that either. Neither did anybody in the Old Testament with the teachings. What Jesus said and what Paul said was, if you're a slave, be a good slave. If you're a master, be a good master. Treat one another right and properly. And do it unto the Lord God so that he will reward you. And if you find yourself in hard, difficult times, know what the grace of God is. And Peter said, be sure you honor the king. And the king at that time was Nero. And boy, he wasn't known for his cultural platform, was he? Or morality. Different thing altogether. The next thing to notice is, and I think this is a very important one. Cultural morality creates unholy unions in which unbelieving and enemies of the gospel become welcomed. You can find a lot of non-Christians who agree that we should have more morality in our country, can't you? You can, you can get the, all the Muslims to agree on that one by and large. They want more morality. They say we're too decadent now as it is. You can get the Mormons in on that one. They really strive for morality. There are a lot of denominational groups. There are uh, strong Orthodox Jews who follow. They want morality in all of that. But what you end up with is an alliance together for the purpose of creating a cultural morality. And then you end up with organizations like, uh, what's it called, ECT, Evangelicals and, and Catholics for the uh, cultural morality and the, and the society that they want. You end up creating unholy unions. Second Corinthians chapter 6 says, don't do that. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What fellowship has light with darkness? What agreement has Christ with Satan? Come out from among them and be separated. And what happens is you end up trying to achieve something that the, uh, with a legal system or a court system or through lobbying or, or through media intimidation in order to get your power to uh, level up to where you want it to be so that you can make a dent in society. And you embrace people who agree on the same issues as that. Watch this. You end up getting in with other people who are anti-abortion, anti-homosexual, anti-euthanasia. They're against pornography. And you get all that together, and you're going to accomplish this with some who are co-belligerents. And some things immediately start happening with that. The gospel becomes eclipsed. Because if you start proclaiming this morality message... You're going to blow up your whole organization if you start to insert the gospel in that. Now you've confused it and made a big mess out of things. The gospel becomes destructive. And that leads to the next idea in that, that that means you you have to consider, are you going to be involved in inclusivism? 
You start to stretch the boundaries of the kingdom and you start thinking, now I have to embrace these people who are not in Christ. And we've seen a lot of that happen over the years. And, you know, certainly there's going to be a lot of uh, uh, well-intentioned Jews in heaven, aren't there? There's going to be a lot of well-intentioned from whatever church you want to think of, aren't there? There's going to be a lot of uh, well-intentioned Muslims, are they going to be there? Because you're trying to get people, and they end up quoting everybody from uh, Billy Graham all the way down through the ranks saying, you know, sure, they need to be able to experience the wider mercy of God. But if you spend all your time working on this cultural morality, and you've dumped all your money into that, and you've pulled all these people together to get the money and power to, to pull off this enterprise that you're working on, and then you start to introduce the gospel, it becomes a mess. Because you're saying, boy, we're glad that you're with us on all of this morality. Uh, By the way, our understanding of the gospel says you're all going to end up in hell, but we're glad you're with us on this moral effort that we can work on. That becomes complicated. No, you're not really in the kingdom, but we're glad you're with us and concerned about morality. It gets confusing. So if you don't say that, eventually what you do is get this inclusive idea and say, well, we're just not going to say anything. And everything's going to fit nicely together. We can kind of go on about our business. And then you end up with a, the attitude of postmodernism. There's no absolute truth anyway. And it really gets confusing. And where do you go from there? Soon it's your truth is your truth, and my truth becomes my truth. And let's don't talk about just one truth. Do not create moral alliances in which you embrace people who don't believe the gospel. Paul says, if you meet anybody who gives you any other gospel than the gospel I gave you in Galatians 1, that person is anathema, is cursed. You can't do that in an environment that says, well, all we want to do is create morality. But if you're going to work with the gospel in there, you're going to have some confusion going on. You can't preach the gospel then because the gospel gets eclipsed. And next... This effort at cultural morality becomes selective, very selective as to the sin it attacks. You know, I don't notice these people when they start talking about this morality here on this. uh, They never really say anything about pride. They never deal with anything against materialism. Uh, They never really want to get at anything that's against divorce or or adultery. You know, they say, well, uh, you, you have some folks who are really against homosexuality because that's bizarre and abnormal. Uh, really against pedophilia, because that's sick and abnormal. But they're against killing babies. You know, you just can't do that. They're against filth and, and pornography. And there seems to be a certain satisfaction in that morality. But there's a lot of other things that they don't talk about. They don't talk about alcoholism. They do try to legalize certain drugs. At one point in America... One of the greatest advocates for the religious right, a national spokesman, a well-known politician, while he's working to develop this particular platform, was involved with a woman who wasn't his wife. But we don't want to deal with that, do we? It becomes a selective thing. And putting it down where it really needs to be doesn't deal with the worst sin in the world. You know what the worst sin in the world is? I didn't realize this until I thought about it and some of the comments that MacArthur made. 
The worst sin in the world, we all know what that is. And you stop and think about what's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So the greatest sin would be to break that commandment. And the sad truth is you and I have all broken that commandment. At some time or another, we've all been guilty of that. R.C. Sproul, another scholar, wrote and said, And you know you haven't kept that commandment at any time in your life for five seconds. You can't keep that commandment absolutely and totally. It's impossible. But yet that's what we're called to do. And if you're going to go after the immorality of this nation, you need to indict them for not loving the Lord their God with heart, mind, soul, and strength as a nation. That's the biggest indictment in all of that. That's the sum of all the commandments. And the second one, love your neighbor as yourself. Can't do that one for five seconds either. We all struggle with that one in our own ways. So if we're going to get moral, we need to go where we need to because the Apostle Paul says, here's the sum of all of it, the love that Jesus Christ brings to us. That love, faith working through love. So why do we have to pick the selective ones? If we're going to call America to morality, we need to indict them where they need to be indicted. Indict our own hearts where we need to be indicted. Say we've broken the first and great commandment, and we've broken the second one, and we all somehow keep doing that all the time to some degree or another. That means we'd all be condemned to hell, wouldn't it? We've got to look real seriously at where these things lead us. The next one says, uh, cultural morality fails to understand the true nature of spiritual warfare. They'll say, well, uh, this particular moral platform is spiritual warfare. That's not real spiritual warfare. That's, that's, that may be only just a little glimmer of what's going on. There's more to it than that. Changing laws, changing morality, becoming more politically correct, that's not what spiritual warfare is about. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says spiritual warfare is smashing down all of human ideologies and using the truth of God to do it. That's spiritual warfare. Bringing captives out, he says, and bringing them into obedience to Jesus Christ by submitting to the truth of God through the word of God. And real spiritual warfare is this. You have a whole world of people who think wrong, and their thinking is damning. They think wrong about themselves. They think wrong about God. They think wrong about Christ, if they think about him at all. And they need to think differently. They need to know what truth is. They need to know the gospel. They need to know the truth of themselves outside of Christ. They need to know the truth about God. The truth about his work. The truth about salvation and grace and forgiveness. And if you bring that truth to the person and you engage in the war with their mind, then you bring that Either to they're going to go off and continue in bad thinking or they're going to look at spiritual truth and want to make a change. But the question is, what's the church supposed to be doing? Preaching the glorious, extensive, complete, whole message of redemption through Jesus Christ. Take that message to people to fortify their souls and then fortify their ideologies and fortify their morality, fortify their entire lives. That's real spiritual warfare. It's not political at all. It's for the minds and the eternal souls of people. So that when they leave this realm, they're ready for the next one. And next, it's dangerous because it makes those who are commanded to lovingly reach with the gospel, it makes people into the enemy 
rather than the mission field. You know, the unbelievers, the immoral people, the pornographers, the homosexuals, the abortionists, and whoever else is out there like that, they end up becoming vilified, and, and we start calling them enemies. And they're not enemies. They're the mission field. They're the mission field for you and me. Think again about Jonah and the people of Nineveh. A bunch of wretched people, really wretched people. They're pagans. They slaughtered their enemies. They piled their skulls in pyramids. They dammed up rivers with dead bodies. They would cover pillars in the buildings with the flayed skin of, of conquered leaders. That's pretty ugly stuff. No wonder Paul would talk about people who are wicked and haters of God, enemies of Israel. But God tells Jonah, go preach to them. And he says, I'm not going to do that. And he turns around and tries to go 2,000 miles in the opposite direction. That would be repulsive to preach forgiveness to Nineveh. And God turns him around and does that because he's, he's swallowed up by a whale or whatever that was and vomited out. And, you know, I don't think even the whale could stomach Jonah being a bitter and hard prophet like that. So he finally changes his mind and he goes to preach to Nineveh. And they turn around. And then he gets really mad at God because God has forgiven these people. Well, now what happens? Well, they've become moral, but how long do they stay with that? And how big of a strength is, a, is just the moralism itself going to be? We need to know, and we need the people of this world to know, the sinners in our world to know, that we love them enough to bring a message of forgiveness. They're not our enemies. They're a mission field for us. And next, the morality, cultural morality brings persecution and hatred of Christians for the wrong reasons. We're vilified up one side and down the other today in the media. We get persecuted for all the wrong reasons. The Bible says if we're going to suffer as a church, make sure it's for the right reasons. Not because we were doing protests and we were putting up placards and, and all these other things. 1 Peter 4 and verse 14 says, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Be reviled for taking the gospel to people. And if people want to reject it and then they want to revile you, let them do it. But people who call themselves Christians today are being vilified by the world for political reasons. If we're going to be reviled by people of the world, make sure it's because of the spiritual reasons and what we're doing with the gospel. And then last... Cultural morality reverses the divine order. It makes morality the power for salvation. If we could get just a more moral America, the more people are going to believe the gospel, then we can clean up this country and it will give us a greater opportunity for the gospel. And that's the reverse of the divine order. The divine order says, it's a mess out there. Take the gospel. It's not straighten them out first so that we can take the gospel. They're messed up. Take the gospel. That's what will straighten them out. So to change the nation, what do we need to work on? Work on taking the gospel to the lost. I take it back. This is the last one. It fails to understand the wrath of God. Paul says in Romans 1 that when God gets angry with a nation, when he's a nation that's turned on him, when they won't glorify him as God, he unleashes his wrath. When God's angry at a nation that has had the truth and spurned the truth, it says three times in Romans 1, he gave them up. He gave them up. He gave them up. And that's a form of God's judgment in time. 
He gives them up to, to sexual immorality and all those other things, homosexuality. He gives them up to a twisted, uh, reprobate mind that Paul speaks of. And when we look at our nation, sexual immorality is rampant. Homosexuality is rampant. Reprobate minds are everywhere. And that's evidence that God's giving them up to that. God's wrath is being unleashed. So how do we overturn the wrath of God? Not with political platforms, but with the message of Jesus Christ. So I guess to sum it all up, I'd say this. Moralism confuses and misses the priority for Christians in the world. The gospel doesn't do that. The gospel gives a divine message that humanity outside of Jesus is damned and they need help. The most highly moral people among the Jews, those Pharisees, needed the Messiah. They flaunted themselves. They even killed Jesus Christ along with the Romans. They needed help. And our task is to convert people to Jesus Christ and change their lives that way. And again, the key to morality is being in Christ. Paul says in Romans 1, 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That's God's power. If anybody had confidence in the flesh, it was Paul. Look at all these things I've got, he would say in Philippians chapter 3. But he said all that didn't count for anything compared to knowing Jesus Christ. That's what he needed. Our calling is to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, to transform them by giving them the transforming power of the gospel. I noticed one of the songs in our book earlier. It spoke to the passage that Walter read this morning in Psalm 29. And it's entitled, The Voice of the Lord, number 438. The voice of the Lord's over the waters. And it goes and says all the things the psalmist did in Psalm 29. But in the chorus he says, Oh, listen and hear as the silence is shattered. Oh, listen and hear. For one day all nations will bow at the sound of his voice. One of our songs in the book says, listen to our hearts and we petition God to listen to us. And I wonder, how many times does God petition us to listen to his voice, to what he's saying? His voice says, come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. There is rest in Jesus by being immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins, by walking daily and becoming more and more like the Christ who saved you. And if you need help in any of those areas, would you come while we stand and while we sing?